Welcome to the podcast for Cultural Reformation, a ministry of the Ezra Institute, where we equip current and emerging Christian cultural leaders with biblical worldview, Christian philosophy, and cultural apologetics studies through residential training programs and print and digital resources. I'm Dr. Michael Thiessen, together with Dr. Joe Boot and Pastor Nate Wright, and we are pleased to continue on in our discussion in these coming weeks on the family, and it's great to have all of you listening. For those of you who are listening, uh, who are listening with your teen children, hey, young adults, are you ready to level up your understanding of life, culture, and faith? We want you to join any one of our Worldview Youth Academies now available online. You can register today at EzraInstitute.com. Tell your parents, this is where I want to go for summer camp, and don't stop talking about it until they sign you up. We want you to transform your worldview, stimulate critical thinking, engage with like-minded peers, and we really want you to, of course, investigate the Lordship of Jesus Christ in your life. So just register now and go to the EzraInstitute.com, and you can look at slash training programs. You'll see the Worldview Leadership Academy and our Cultural Leadership Academy there for some of you parents and for some of you older young adults. So Nate and Joe, today we continue to talk about the family. Uh, Nate, where do, where do you want us to begin? Well, one of the things uh, we wanted to talk about for a while now is uh, is fatherhood, and uh, we've kind of got sidetracked talking a little bit about uh, everything that was going on with Alistair Begg, which really was a practical outworking. I mean, we, we talk about fathers, and fathers are, are meant to, to teach and to instruct and to protect, and uh, so we, we talked about that, which I think was very much on point, but uh, today we want to get to our discussion about fatherhood. And uh, just before I do that, I did want to uh, make all of our listeners aware that uh, we have an exciting opportunity at the Ezra Institute for a full-time position in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where we've recently launched our uh, U.S. office. And the position we're actually hiring for is the Director of Content Management and Publishing. So if you're looking to apply your talents in a meaningful and Christ-centered way with like-minded organization, please consider that opening. Uh, In this role, you'll manage all of our digital and print content and have an opportunity to get involved in a lot of exciting initiatives and events that the Ezra Institute are involved in. So if you want more details on that, you can check out our job posting on redballoon.work. And, uh, and uh, if that's exciting to you, we're, we're looking to expand the team. So what we want to talk about today is God as Father and fatherhood. And uh, one of the verses that ought to come to our minds is in Ephesians chapter 3, in verse 14, Paul, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And one of the first things that we want to mention is that, um, you know, God is not called Father because we have earthly fathers. Earthly fathers are called fathers because God in heaven is a father. And so uh, with that sort of introduction, Joe, why don't you uh, kick off this topic and talk a little bit about what it means that God is father? Yeah, great to be back together for the show as we continue this series uh, and uh, to be able to discuss this together. Of course, as you've said, uh, Nate, and I think that's a critical place to start, um, as image bearers, as those who are imaging God, human fatherhood uh, is rooted from the Christian standpoint in the character and nature of God as he has revealed himself um, in his covenant. Uh, and so that's the that's the vital starting point. We serve uh, and worship the triune God who reveals himself in familial terms, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And um, Christian philosophers have, of course, reflected on the nature of that uh, eternal relationship. That's an ontological uh, issue there, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, um, three in one. And we don't. this isn't a, a series on the Trinity. Maybe that is a subject we could come to at some point. And uh, some of the things that um, come out of that for us in Christian theology, the significance of all of that, the Holy Spirit as the person who also provides the space between Father and Son for that relationship to exist. Uh, And so 
the father is uh, the is an, is is eternally the father, and uh, the son is the only begotten, not begotten, not made. Remember, Paul says so. He's the eternally begotten son, um, and uh, that means that fatherhood uh, is central to the very character and nature of God. And so in creation, uh, we see from the beginning, as the uh, we talked in our previous sessions, actually, because we were dealing with marriage in, in the response to that uh, situation that we were addressing, the, the whole uh, Alastair Begg situation, um, we talked about marriage and the father of the bride, uh, of, of Eve, bringing uh, Eve to Adam, creating the first... Um, which is the first marriage, creating the first family. And then, of course, the instruction is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Well, what does that immediately imply? Fatherhood. Fatherhood is immediately implied in the command to rule and subdue. And uh, so Adam is given a peculiar and particular responsibility and a particular charge there. And, and Eve is to be his helpmate, uh, his partner in that, uh, the cultural mandate and central to that cultural mandate is to um, be fruitful and to multiply, and therefore fathering is uh, an, an aspect of that uh, of that requirement. I think something else that occurred to me as we were reflecting on this um, that's worth saying at the outset is that we we shouldn't leave the person of Jesus Christ out of our reflections on fatherhood. Um, as, there's a number of reasons for that, but but we're we're all aware uh, that there there is at the moment, and there has been for some time, a bit of a bit of a movement, um, even within Christian circles, uh, to almost idealize singleness uh, and um, and celibacy, as though this is the more excellent way. And Jesus is pointed to as uh, as you know single. Uh, and Paul is pointed to as single, although as uh, previously a Pharisee, it's almost certain that Paul was a widower um, and and had been married. But we often, because of, and, and maybe we can talk a bit about that in the show today, about the, 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 the red flag there is in this sort of notion that somehow eschatologically, because there isn't going to be marriage as we know it in heaven, in the kingdom of heaven, I should say, that somehow um, married life and having children and therefore being a father is almost a lesser existence to some sort of celibate life. And this has often been actually invoked as a sort of um, support for or justification of uh, the idea of, in fact, I've heard it coming from those who are, are talking about a sort of Christian gay identity even, um, that... Um, that that this sort of um, uh, same sex love is more eschatologically significant uh, than uh, than marriage and family, um, and that somehow singleness uh, is is a more excellent way. And I think that that that's a serious problem. We can we can talk about that. But the Lord Jesus Himself. Just a few quick things to note um, that uh, maybe we can riff off. Uh, in in our discussion today, Jesus had this very very. Um, first of all, the Lord Jesus Himself is God with us. So one of the reasons that we can say that Jesus never married, but beyond the, the the problems that you would have if Jesus had been an earthly father, in the sense of what is the status of his children and his offspring, and and uh, are they gods? You know, I mean, you imagine. Uh, the, the the theological difficulties that would that would have arisen had Jesus been an, an earthly father, um, in the in the sense of being a biological father to 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 anyone, but the Lord Jesus fundamentally theologically the reason Jesus is not married and doesn't have biological children is that he is married to his church, he is the bridegroom, and uh, he he comes to establish as the head of a new family, the head, he's the head of his church, he's the bridegroom. We are his children. 
So Christ is a father. Let, let's not, uh, let's not uh, forget this. He is God with us. And because he is God with us, God the Father is with us in his Son. So he is Emmanuel. God the Father is with us in his Son. And um, he is the, the, the bridegroom, the husband, who has many children. Uh, uh, the family of God. Uh, and, and he is the head. So we are God's children. And the Lord Jesus himself, who is the son of God, is both our brother and our father. Um, he, all the terms of which we can speak about Jesus are familial, interestingly enough, aren't they? He is, he is, our, he is the bridegroom, bridegroom, so he's the husband. Uh, he's our brother because we're, we're counted now uh, as, as children of God, uh, as joint heirs with the son. Um, but we are also his children um, because of the triune relationship that God sustains to us as his people. And do you remember when Jesus has that conversation, uh, he's told, uh, I think it's in the Gospel of Matthew, um, uh, that um, his, his mother and his brothers and so forth are looking for him. And he says, who is my brother and my sister and my mother? Um, those that do the will of God. So um, it's important that we don't leave the Lord Jesus out we, as the, both the model man and um, God with us, the Father uh, with us. Remember what he said to Thomas. He says, you know, show us the Father, um, uh, the disciple said, and that will be enough for us. Uh, and Jesus said, um, uh, don't you know me? Is it, um, uh, one of you guys needs to correct me here because my mind's going blank. Um, he says, yeah, is uh, it, if you've seen Philip? me, you've seen the Father. Yeah, he says, I, he said that the, the point is that he says, if you see me, I'm just trying to remember which disciple he addressed specifically. Um, don't you say Philip, uh, perhaps? Uh, Michael, you can check that I think for us. Is, I think it is Philip. But. Uh, yeah, but, but he basically says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father because I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And so let's not leave the Lord Jesus out of this and his concern for the family um, and his his attitude to children. Let the children come to me for as such is the kingdom of heaven. Um, we are his children. And so Jesus is a father in a very real sense. He's a husband. He's the bridegroom in a very real uh, very real sense. These are the images that, that the Bible uses um, for God and for the Lord Jesus relationship with us. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think uh, one of the places that um, might even be familiar in the minds of our listeners right now, because many uh, churches, I think, preach through Isaiah 9 at Christmas time, right? For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And then it gives this child, Jesus Christ, four names, right? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. But the third one often gives us pause. It's Everlasting Father, and oftentimes we don't think of Christ the Son as an everlasting father, but that's exactly right, Joe. He is fatherly in his relationship to us. Obviously, he saves us, he protects us, he provides for us, all the things that we would say a good father ought to do. And then I, I thought that was a really good point that you made, that he is uh, like unto a father to us because he is married to uh, the bride, the church, and we are his children. I think it's in Galatians, I can't remember if it's chapter three or four, where it describes the church as the mother of us all, right? So Paul, in, in describing the church, he says, the church is our mother. So Christ is the bridegroom married to the church, his bride. The church is our mother. Therefore, we are the children of the union between Christ and the church. And so in a very, you know, eschatological sense, you're absolutely right that, that Christ is like the father to us. The church is the mother. And we the people of God are comprised of the church. And I think this is one of the areas where um, the church can sometimes get a little wonky when we're talking about like intimacy with Christ and things like that. This is one of the reasons I think we talked in a previous show about sort of the feminization of the church and how a lot of our worship songs just sound like, you know, um, you could substitute Jesus for my boyfriend and, and, you know, sing those songs quite romantically. I think a lot of men get uncomfortable with that partially because um, we aren't meant to think of Christ that way, right? 
collectively he is the bridegroom collectively we are the his bride but that's not an individual status right the individual status is to look at him as everlasting father to look at the church as our mother and we are the children who are saved protected and provided for by a good and caring father yeah that's right and the you know and important to add there um that the we we mustn't we mustn't get nervous of that articulation as you've just described it the church is our mother because that is biblical but it's been a catholic emphasis so protestants have tended to um uh recoil a bit from that but actually no that is that's it's accurate now obviously how that fleshes itself out is important um theologically um in the differences that we would hold to, to 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 romanism over that but no this is this is right this is the this is the image of scripture and um the that the importance of that point that as the the christ as the bridegroom is that collective theological understanding of one of the relationships that christ sustains to his people as uh, the as the church the church is the is our mother and uh, the Lord Jesus functions right there as our father in that relationship, and we are his children. That's a great point, too, about bringing in Isaiah, everlasting father, prince of peace. It's one of the titles, covenantal titles, that we have um, with the Lord Jesus. So that's important. And of course, if we were to do just a quick word study on the teaching of the concept of God our Father, it is... It's Christ who actually does a significant amount of teaching in uh, in his ministry on the fatherhood um, of uh, of God the Father. You know, we see in uh, Matthew chapter seven when he's talking about you know uh, knocking at the door, seeking the kingdom, and he says, you know, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give? give good gifts to those who ask him. And you can just scroll through a word study on the word father, and you can see that Christ actually positions himself uh, as son and teaches about the, the, the nature of the father. And all of these things are so important and so important foundationally for us, because of course, I think often we think about the image of God and and we're thinking about that in the context of the value of humanity. Um, we're thinking that in the context of um, trying to get our categories correct between maleness and femaleness, and those are two very important things. Um, but the purpose for us being created in the image of God is to bring God the Father glory and to be his representatives on earth. So when when you see all of these instructions, these instructive uh, metaphors, these, in, it, it, w- you know, where we are, where, where uh, we are seeing Jesus use the metaphor of, of the bridegroom and of um, uh, the bride. This is to help us reflect God's character in the very real world. We're here to represent it. So if men follow in the footsteps of our of Christ to be, you know, as we're commanded, even as, you know, even as uh, Paul unpacks this and, and commands us to, we are helping the world see God as he is in the, in men um, reflecting the role of the husband and women reflecting uh, some of the uh, characteristics of God within their role. But it is necessary. It's actually it's actually necessary that as we understand this likeness part, and as we understand uh, how God is communicating to us how we should be based upon how we see Him, that we actually go and put these things into practice. It's this is part of the problem right now with the feminization of the church. Uh, this is the problem with humans trying to fashion gods in their own images, because number one, it derails actual human families because it's a distorted image of God. And then number two, that distorted image of God sends a distorted message about God out into the world. Yeah. It's interesting that in Ephesians 5, when we get instructions for husbands, for wives, and for for marriage in general, 
you know, Paul Paul makes this this amazing claim where he says, talking about the one flesh union between a husband and a wife, and he says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. So the very fact that that Christ, you know, goes into and indwells the church is a is is actually what the picture of of matrimonial uh, oneness comes from, right? So the the uh, the coming together of husband and wife in the marital union is actually a, a physical picture of the spiritual reality that Christ indwells the church. And so you have Christ, the everlasting father, and the church, who you know, Paul says is our mother, and the the indwelling of one to the other, the, the one flesh union of them is actually what is supposed to be reflected in marriage. So you're absolutely right, Michael, is how we reflect the fatherhood of God and how we reflect those uh heavenly patterns on earth matters it, it it's it it's a it's a testimonial it's a teaching it's a testimony to the the world about what god is like so let's take a, a i guess maybe a couple minutes uh, having established sort of the the fatherhood of christ and the necessity uh, of seeing him as father so let's talk a little bit about then what is what is a model man what is a model father like what are the attributes of christ that fathers and men are supposed to emulate, um, and we think through some of the characteristics of Christ. So I'll go over to you first, Joe. What are some of the things in Christ that specifically those of us who are fathers ought to look at and see as fatherly characteristics of Christ worth imitating? Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's our calling. Yeah. Just to reemphasize again um, that uh, Jesus does call his disciples little children, um, in uh, yeah. in a variety of texts, you know, Matthew eleven twenty five, Luke ten twenty one, John thirteen thirty three. So this this um, this legitimacy of us talking about Christ as, in that sense, the model father uh, is is really important. And um, you know, I've often reflected on you know the characteristics of the Lord Jesus. Um, first of all, we could say that. Um, as himself, the, the the father of many children, um, he honors his father. So right back, actually, as far back as Luke Luke two forty nine, he says to his um, earthly mother and uh, adoptive father Joseph, when he's found in the temple, did you not know I must be about my father's business? So one of the first things for us us as as fathers, if we're going to uh, follow the example of the Lord Jesus um, is to honor the, honor our our fathers, honor our parents. Um, I think modeling something significant and important for our own children first involves um, modeling honor and reverence and respect for the previous generation. Um, if we can't um, honor our parents as fathers. Um, how can we expect to lead our own family and uh, receive honor and respect from our own children? So I think that maybe the first thing at the, at the most basic level is that you see that Jesus is always, as, as a man, um, and as the one who is the father of many, uh, is honoring of his own parents. He respects the family. Look at the way, for example, Jesus treated his mother. Um, the dignity, the care, the respect with which he treated his his mother, and we could say more, uh, a good deal more about the way he treated women in general, which I think is important in a culture which, on the one hand, has started to despise and treat women again as objects, um, uh, and even to destroy womanhood with the whole trans uh, fiction. And destroy the uniqueness of, of of womanhood. Jesus honored it. He respected it. At the same time, um, there was no sort of machismo, medieval attitude towards women either. And um, we're seeing some of that creep in, as though uh, I, 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 I'm sad to say, even in some um, uh, formatively or uh, or, or uh, supposedly Christian circles, um, where there's a danger that we start treating women as second-class citizens in, an, in a desire to reassert patriarchy. Um, we start um, uh, not treating women in a Christ-like way. 
So I would say maybe the first point is Jesus' honor for his own father and his honor for the family. Think about the Lord Jesus, even at the cross, where the ultimate act of sacrifice, greater love as no man than this, and he laid down his life for his friends, and all that Jesus was bearing in terms of sin, uh, in terms of the, the wrath of God, never mind the pain and the agony that he was going through physically at the cross, he's thinking about his mother and who is going to care for his mother. And he says to John, the apostle John, you know, behold, uh, John, your mother. And he says to his mother, to John, uh, says to his mother concerning John, behold, your son. So Jesus honor for um, his father and then for the family um, would be the, the 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 first attribute, um, and along with that, of course, you know there there is a great there's silence to to a large degree in the Gospels about uh, Jesus's adoptive father Joseph beyond the um, account of his birth and then the discovery of Jesus in the temple. Most scholars and by tradition, most have assumed that, that Jesus' father, uh, adoptive father Joseph, died. Um, and is out of the picture quite quickly. Um, and so Jesus, uh, you know, very much, um, you know, assumes that leadership role, it seems, with within the family. He's the one who seems to be present, giving direction to his mother at the wedding at Cana, not his brothers. Um, they, the brothers seem to be looking to Jesus, um, obviously, as the older brother, um, because they came later because Mary was a virgin when she was uh, was married and uh, and, and the, the Lord was conceived. So he's the older brother, so he assumes that uh, responsibility um, within, the, within the family. And so um, the, the, you see the Lord honoring the family, taking responsibility and working. Um, and uh, this will give us obviously a lead-in to talking about providing and protecting and preaching uh, or discipling within the, the context of the family. Um, but we see the masculinity, the strength of Jesus in the way he serves, um, uh, honors his father, loves his mother, cares for his mother, and obviously is providing as a carpenter, um, as one who's been right up until the age of 30. He's not sitting around twiddling his thumbs. He's not in a cave meditating. Um, he's not sat on a pole punishing his body. Um, he's not waiting for some ecstatic vision out in the desert. He's working in a trade. Uh, he And it's clear that he's, a, in that sense, a man's man. I mean, the people that are drawn to him are fishermen. They're working men. Um, so the sort of the sort of image of, of Jesus as a sort of Francis of Assisi type figure, a kind of uh, effeminate um, figure with birds perched on his shoulders, talking to him and fluttering off his lap as he models them out of clay, as we see in some of the, um, the Gnostic Gospels, um, and uh, sort of a communing with bunny rabbits and animals. This, this is not the image of Jesus that we get in the Bible. Here is a first century Jew um, who uh, is in the temple from the age of 12 debating with the teachers of the law and then working at a trade, providing for the family, actually. That seems, that seems clear. Um, we can go on in a minute to talk about other attributes, the strength of Jesus, the courage of Jesus, and so on. But let me, let me leave it there and let uh, one or two others come in. I think Michael is chomping at the bit to to say something much less profound. So let me let me just throw it back to, to you guys a second. Michael. Well, talking about not having a machismo or a macho competitive attitude, Dr. Boot. Yes. Uh, no, actually, there's a really important connection here, guys. And, and Joe, un unfortunately, uh, you just threw me under the bus as I was, I was about to compliment you. Um, <laughs> This concept, there is a struggle within manhood to say, what is the nature of a masculine man? And it's a very important connection to the preaching and the authority of Christ. Because if we look back creationally, right? Um, if we look at pre-fall, Adam was created um, as 
uh, an authority. He he named Eve. Uh, the the God named the human race after man, not after woman. Um, the serpent came to Eve first in order to undermine Adam's authority, and of course, Christ Himself taught and and uh, mesmerized the crowds with His authority. And so, Joe, as we were talking about, as a man, uh, is it that I can bench two twenty, or is it that I have authority in my home? Uh, because of my my character, my dependency on the Word of God, and because of the of the counsel that I insist upon, and the the battle in the church and the battle in the home needs men need to understand where do I go wage the war? You have to wage the war in uh, gathering authority appropriately, so that you might preach the Word of God and others in the church and in your home and in the public square say that is a man's man because he has the authority of God behind him. And so, you know, it's not that I go down to the gym and I get all the testosterone pumping and I, 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 I bench as much as I can. And now all of a sudden I'm a man. No, you can actually see a man when he teaches with authority. And that is connected both to the creational purpose of manhood to be the leader in his home, and of course, how Jesus um, exemplified that for us. So this concept of not getting confused about manhood is really important, and it is can it, it, it's it's the battleground. Like wh- where is it that manhood is attacked? Everywhere. It's no women need to do this. No men need to sit over there. No, he can't say that because he doesn't have permission to do it. And in every category the authority of the male is being attacked. And then the flip side of that, the solution for so much of society is for godly men to regain their authority properly so that they have something to say to the world and the things that they will say to the world and their families will transform those homes, those churches, and those nations. Yeah, one of the things that comes to my mind when you say that, Michael, is um, the story, I think it's in Mark 9, where um, the disciples uh, are arguing on the road about who is the greatest, and Christ comes along and and kind of says, you know, I overheard your discussion. He says, you know, those who are great among you, you know, they lord it over others, right? So you're talking about authority and it's interesting because authority, we have such a, uh, a messed up ver- idea of authority that oftentimes we either think it's authoritarian, right? It's this domineering sort of thing. Um, or we just think of it as negative in general and it's not something to be sought by Christians. But Jesus actually comes along and he says, those who must be mu- great among you must be servants. So he actually doesn't chastise the disciples for their desire for greatness, right? He's not chastising their ambition, but he's he's chastising the direction of their ambition, right? That they want they want the kind of authority that they see in the pagan world. They want to lord their authority over others. And he said true authority actually comes from the bottom up. It comes through servanthood. It comes from laying your life down for others. And I would say as we're talking about biblical masculinity and what fathers ought to do, one of the first things that we need to recognize is that um, biblical masculinity is taking responsibility right? So authority is given to those who who bear responsibility. And I think one of the things that we see in the Lord Jesus is he even takes responsibility for sins that were not his, right? He takes, he takes responsibility for uh, righting the wrongs that he did not commit. And uh, when we look out at the world around us now, one of the reasons we see so many unfit fathers is because we see those who despise the responsibility that comes with fatherhood rather than the leaning in I tell young men all the time, if you want to grow in maturity and godliness, seek responsibility. Seek to be looked at as somebody who can be reliable and and, and look to heap responsibility on yourself because nothing forges godly character like bearing responsibility. In a parallel passage, actually, um, to the one you mentioned, uh, where uh, Salome, the, the, um, uh, the wife of Zebedee, um, James and John are uh, uh, are in, are in the frame, and uh, their mother 
comes to uh, the Lord Jesus, uh, Salome, and uh, Jesus' aunt, basically, I think, um, and says, you know, um, we've got a request. And the request is that they would sit, that James and John might sit on the right and the left hand of the Lord Jesus in the kingdom, which, of course, are the places of power and authority. And um, uh, maybe the presumption here is that because of some, you know, family connection, some... some uh, uh, familial connection because James and John are Jesus' cousins uh, uh, after the flesh, um, that uh, they can get a a special um, position, a special seat of power. And Jesus uses that as the occasion for teaching the disciples because the other disciples come back, they hear about this, and they are furious. And why are they so angry? Well, because um, they wanted those seats. Not, not because they thought James and John were out of order because, you know, you should humble yourself, but because they wanted those positions of authority. Jesus obviously turns down uh, Salome's request. He says those, those positions are for those for whom the Father has um, appointed them. But he then goes on to teach, and he says, the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over you and exercise authority. And it's a very interesting Greek word there. The, instead of just using the standard words for authority and power, there's the prefix uh, of kata on both of those terms, uh, authority and exercising authority and, and power. And it literally means down, to subjugate, to hold down. So he's saying that this kind of um, um, machismo gentile power that you see all around you in the Roman Empire um, is not about um, uh, ser- is not about service, which is what Christ's kingship and lordship and manhood is all about. Taking responsibility, serving, just as Paul gives instruction to, to husbands to, to to love their wives, um, as Christ loved the church, and to lay down uh, their lives uh, for them. This is about holding others down. So this prefix of kata in the Greek is put in front of both of those words, which struck me when you you mentioned that, um, is that it's it's a power in order to stand on and to subjugate, not to serve. Where he says, it it will not be so among you, Jesus says, but whoever would be great among you must be your deacon in the Greek and your bondservant, your slave, doulos. So... um, that's very interesting that when you look at Jesus' understanding of power and authority as it relates to godly men, it's about service. And think about the way we have in the West taken up the Christian tradition, um, and we don't have prime dictators in political office. We have prime ministers. We don't have civil um, tyrants, although we do uh, now, but that they are civil servants um, uh, we don't have um, uh, leaders in the church as uh, 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 tyrants or dictators either. They are ministers of the gospel, shepherds and under shepherds under the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's interesting that when you actually look at power and authority, even as it's, as it's structured politically uh, or in the family or ev- or in the church, it's structured as taking responsibility as a man to serve. And um, even being an overseer, uh, Paul says, he who desires to be an elder, an overseer, desires a good thing. It's not that we shouldn't desire to be overseers, as long as it's to serve God's kingdom. And I think that, um, you know, Christ says in that very passage I've alluded to, he says, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Uh, and that's true for all of those spheres, uh, uh, the political, the, you know, the civil, the, the ecclesiastical, and the familial. And so I think this balance that Michael was talking about um, is so vitally important but, but that we don't, when we think about being, a, because when Jesus was a man's man, that actually meant he was also a woman's man in the right sense, right? That um, that the way he treated, he was, he was, the, the women were drawn to him as well. Look at Mary Magdalene. Look at when Mary came and poured the ointment, the, the expensive ointment all over his feet and, and, and wept and, and washed, um, his feet also with her tears and dried them with her hair. Um, 
this is this is a man who was for for women also in the in the in the resurrection garden it's women who he meets first in uh the garden and they recognize him as the gu- they well they mistake him for the gardener why because here is the second adam who was the gardener of the first garden in eden here is the second adam the great gardener why was he mistaken for the gardener i think probably because he was doing some gardening <laughs> i think he was there in the garden tomb um uh tending that uh garden anyway he's a, he's a he's a man for women also clearly in the gospels and he's a man for children the the passage in um in mark 10 struck me while you were both talking about uh Jesus' manhood, um, some people were bringing little children to him, it says in verse 13, so he might touch them, but his disciples rebuked them. That's interesting, isn't it? Interesting, isn't it? You know, oh, this is the Lord. I mean, this is Jesus. Don't, you know, why, why, are you bringing, why are you bringing kids to this man? Um, when Jesus saw it, it doesn't say he was, you know, he said, no, no, calm down. He was indignant. Like when they tried to stop, when his disciples tried to stop children coming to Jesus, so they're men, they're with him, they're his disciples. We see the women coming to him. Now the children are coming to him, and they're indignant. And Jesus is indignant when they try to stop them. And he says, Let the little children come to me. Don't stop them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I assure you, whoever does not welcome the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. After taking them in his arms, he laid his hands on them and blessed them. So if we have the perception that as fathers and as men that that doesn't involve taking the babies, the infants, the children in our arms and blessing them um, and and our wives being drawn to us because of our nurture, our care for children, and our compassionate hearts, then we've misunderstood biblical manhood. As Michael says, if we think it's about, you know, going in and benching 220, in my heyday, Michael, I was benching 240, but uh, just as an aside. But um, uh, if we think that we can confuse <laughs> the bench press, which is a very good point, with man, there's nothing wrong with working out. Yeah, sure, be fit. Be strong so that you can be a protector of your family. But if we conflate that with manhood and we are posting, you know, it's pretty off-putting when you see, you know, Christian guys these days posting pictures of themselves at the gym because they, I just benched 200 or 225. And that somehow uh, with your beard and your muscle vest is, um, I've just depicted manhood for everyone. We're making a very, very serious mistake. Be be uh, healthy enough that you can pick up your children and protect them and and protect your wife. Sure, um, but um, don't conflate machismo with um, biblical masculinity and what it means to be uh, a father uh, of our of our children. Yeah, that's to actually settle for like a caricature as as opposed to the real thing. And and just uh, I was really drawn uh, to what you said there about you know uh, Christ in the garden as the second Adam depicted as the gardener. Um, as you were talking about the uh, that passage in in Mark where uh, Jesus is talking about Gentiles lording their authority by by pushing down. It reminds me of, um, you know, when you think about Adam's original mandate in the garden was to have dominion over the earth and to subdue it. And um, and and then it says in, in chapter 2, verse 17, that Adam was placed in the garden to, to keep it and to cultivate it. And, and so one of the things that uh, I remember preaching through when I was preaching through Genesis uh, was that that word dominion is such a, a pervasive, such a broad word. And essentially what it means is to bring about the flourishing of that which is around you. So the, in contrast, right? So what Jesus is saying is don't have the kind of authority that pushes others down to prop yourself up. Have the kind of authority that actually brings about the flourishing of all that which is around you. And at the end of the day, this is what we're talking about. This is why women were drawn to him, why men were drawn to him, why children were drawn to him. Because Christ spent his life, didn't just live his life, spent his life 
propping up those around him and bringing about their flourishing. And that's what a good father does. And I know that Michael wants to uh, bring this back to uh, provision and and preaching and providing. So uh, I want to kick that back to you, Michael. But that was just interesting. I thought that uh, um, that, that, that kind of responsibility, that kind of leadership that brings about the flourishing of that which is around rather than them pushing down that which is around to prop yourself up. Yeah. I want to just make the reconnection between responsibility. So guys, I've really appreciated the discussion. Uh, Nate, this nuance of saying manhood is taking the responsibility. And then of course, I'm trying to connect that to the idea of in order to then execute the role as father, we need to take the appropriate authority to do that. So we've accepted the task of being responsible we know one of the means of doing that is to authoritatively imitate Christ in preaching of the word and in the leadership of the home. And then Joe, you emphasize service and uh, this concept that the service is, is, is cultivating and it's drawing everybody in rather than holding down. This is all so good. And this is why it leads to the practical application of the father being preacher, provider, and protector. Someone who takes responsibility and has the authority of God's word and is willing to take the time to serve his family, exhorts his children in the ways of the Lord. The same person who takes the responsibility, establishes his appropriate authority, and then is willing to serve the family with all of those caveats, is able to provide for his family, be a hard worker, thrive in his vocation, um, uh, climb the corporate ladder appropriately uh, where need be. And then, of course, all of these same attributes are required to be a protector. Uh, If if your kids are getting drug off and you say, well, they're not my responsibility. Uh, If your kids are getting drug off and, and, and like I know something that we go through with our family is in times of crisis, you need your children to be able to listen to your voice. And so if you have no authority in your children's life, it's not like they're going to get dragged off. They're just going to get tempted off. And it's the same thing if you, if you don't have this concept of I'm, I'm here to uh, um, serve my family, sometimes you're going to hold back and go, well, I could just let them get burnt. You know, boys will be boys. And, and you go, I'm, I don't need to serve now. Um, so this, this has been a really fruitful discussion because we need all of these – we need to have this understanding that as men, respond, taking responsibility, claiming authority – and being a servant all actually lead so practically to what we need to do in the home and in the church. And so um, I think people are getting quite a meal here. And Joe, I really, same as Nate, I really appreciated how you paused and, and said Jesus was not just a man of men. He was a man. I think that I think that if someone wanted to, they could take that clip of he was a woman's man and and do what they want with that. Um, but then you even went to the children. And, and so often we just forget about um, how caring Christ was for so many different people groups. It was it was a needed reminder. So back mm-hmm. to you. Yeah, you think about the, 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 in a certain sense, what we would consider contrasts. On the one hand, you know, touching the marginalized, uh, the leper, the unclean, those, the, the, the most vulnerable people left out. Remember the, 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 um, uh, blind Bartimaeus on the road and crying out, son of David, have mercy on me. And people were telling him to be quiet. And, you know, then there's the woman um, who has the issue of blood. Um, this is when Jesus is en route to heal Jairus's daughter, remember? And a woman is pressing through the crowd because she's got an internal problem, obviously, with her um, her womb, her uh, reproductive system. And this is at the heart of of, of womanhood in that sense. Uh, that she's got this problem that the doctors have been unable to solve and she touches, she reaches out and touches him. All the crowd's pressing in around him and he says, you know, who who touched me? Um, and then he pays special attention to to this woman in the midst of all of that. And the disciples say, Lord, well, the whole crowd's pushing. What do you mean who touched you? He said, well, I, I felt the power go out from me. Uh, and then he goes on his way from there to to raise this little girl. Um, uh, he says to her, you know, Talitha Kume, little girl, I say to you, get up. 
and he restores this this little girl to the family. So, and then you'll find Jesus in in the next minute cleansing the temple and turning over the 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 the, the, the tables of the money changers and making a whip and driving them out and driving the animals that have been t- taken into the in temple out. So. In that sense, this is the this is the true man. This is the man for all seasons. This is the model man, um, and the model father. Uh, Michael, you've alluded a few times to you know protecting, providing, uh, preaching. You know that, that these are the things that uh, that the uh, a father is called to do. And my mind went to Paul in Ephesians five when he says specifically to fathers, you know, fathers do not provoke your children to, to wrath or to anger. Don't, don't frustrate them, but bring them up, um, disciple them, nurture them. In other words, in the fear and admonition of the Lord, um, in what way do we provoke our children to wrath, to anger? I think there's a number is- of that we can do that as, as fathers. Um, uh, you but know, that's I, such a good it- question, Joe. We should pause there because that's the connect. Where, where does you can think about where do people where do children get provoked to anger? They get provoked to a father who won't take his responsibility, but then he turns around and demands authority that 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 is uh, not a godly authority. And then they look at their father and go, he doesn't do anything. He doesn't serve me. It's all about him. Like it's 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 exactly the perversion of these things that that cause that. Yet. It's not. It's not the removal of, of the 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 role we're actually supposed to teach. It, it, that's such a good point. I think probably ne- neglect. You know, uh, would it, you, you, neglect would be one, as you said, not taking responsibility. Neglect, heavy handedness, and and I think worst of all, hypocrisy. So if if a, if a, if a child you know experiences neglect, we're neglecting our our responsibility. There's a heavy handedness. Um, that isn't about um, really discipline. It's just about we're taking out our frustrations and our anger on our children, um, and uh, and as and and using that really as a substitute for proper discipline. And then this hypocrisy where we don't model what we are expecting of our children, then they're provoked. And this whole issue of teaching, of raising them in in the instruction of the Lord, um, is vitally important. And um, you know, when I was preparing for our program today, I was looking at the book of Proverbs, of course, which is the instruction of a father to his son that we get to listen in on, in a sense. We get we get to uh, to, to participate, to see uh, this instruction. And the subject areas that the father covers um, concerning the son's relationship to his mother, for example, concerning the pursuit of wisdom, concerning um, laziness and hard work, concerning the avoidance of an immoral woman, um, all of these different subject areas that then a father takes time to teach his son, to instruct his son in the word of God, so that there's a practical understanding, and I know um, with Tyson's Timbits, uh, we need to be practical frequently and, and not just stay at the, the theological level. So, Michael, you know, I was thinking about that too. The importance of, you know, what are the what are the for our UK listeners, Timbits are uh, sort of like doughy, sweet doughy balls that are sold uh, at Tim Hortons in. Um, uh, in in Canada, I think there's a there's quite a few Tim Hortons in the states now. In fact, I saw a few. I, I saw one actually close to me here in England, uh, about ten minutes away. Couldn't believe it. Over here, it's kind of sold as sort of a gourmet coffee sort of outlet, and it's like the, it's the price of Starbucks. <laughs> anyway, not to digress onto the Timbits, but the point the point there is that the teaching is variegated. It's covering all kinds of issues so that the father is helping the son to become a rounded disciple of the Lord, to pay attention to God's law. I mean, that's the focus of Proverbs, paying attention to God's law, walking in wisdom, and therefore all the different areas that the law of God, the wisdom of God touches. Jesus, of course, is the living Torah. He's the truly obedient son. He's the true Israelite. So when you look at the life of Jesus, here you're now seeing the instruction of Proverbs put into perfect practice by the truly obedient son, by the true Israelite, uh, 
who is now um, living out the model of what it means to be a godly, to, to be the true man. So those things, those things really do uh, come together. And in the life of Jesus, if, you, if, if we were to summarize, I think, a word, one word that summarized what Michael was saying about protecting, providing, preaching, or teaching, in other words, as fathers, it's the image of the shepherd who provides for his children or his sheep, his, his little ones. Jesus talks about providing for his children, his little ones. The shepherd provides for the sheep. He protects the sheep and he teaches the sheep. So in that image of the shepherd, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd of the sheep. You've got the, you've got the, the provision. I'm leading them into green pastures. I'm providing everything that they need. You've got protecting because he's defending against wolves. He's guarding. He's got the rod and the staff. So it's the rod of, um, well, I'll come back to that, the staff of protection or the rod of protection. And then you've got the teaching that the, 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 the staff is that of the shepherd, the teacher. So, <laughs> so, so um, uh, the, 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 all of these aspects um, are coming together in this image of the shepherd who carries the rod and the staff. Discipline is there. But care is there, nurture is there, provision is, is there. And we as fathers in our homes are shepherds. We are protecting, we are providing, we are teaching. And I think that's, the, that's where you see Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, the great father of the sheep, of the fold. It's all there in that image, I think. Yeah, there's a great resource uh, that I would recommend on that note. is uh, It's a book by Vadi Bakum called Family Shepherds. And uh, it's an excellent book that uh, sort of um, lays out the exact vision that you just did so eloquently, Joe. Um, one of the, I, I'll, I'll pass it over to Mike. I know we're, uh, we're coming up on our time here for some, maybe some practical wisdom as we sign off. But uh, I think one of the things that I'd just like to summarize some of this is you know, look to Christ, who we often don't think of as the model father, look to him as the model father. And there's so many images, you know, Joe, as you're talking about his nurturing and caring side, and then also the, you know, when he fashions the whip and drives out the money changers, sometimes we get, we fall into a ditch on either side where we are attracted to sort of the temple cleansing Jesus and everything is a fight and everything is a hill to die on. And then uh, some, sometimes we're attracted to sort of the, the laying down, the meek and the humble Jesus. And I think what evangelical churches have too often forgot is that we are to model both the lion and the lamb, right? That Christ is both. And he, and he has the discernment to know when he is to be the lion and when he is to be the lamb. And I think that that's the, you know, that image, you know, of a, um, a, a man who is, who is a da is dangerous, right? Like God, God says, the glory of man is our strength. That men are to be strong. That we we have a commanding presence within our family that is different than the presence of of a mother, right? And 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 yet our children are to know that we aren't dangerous to them, right? We are a danger to that which would threaten them. And uh, and the only other image that I think of 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 Christ as we think about this. And there's a, there's a million things. So one of our applications is go and study the life of Jesus and look at him as the model father. And one picture that comes to my mind is when the disciples are with Jesus on the Sea of Galilee and a storm comes up and you have this, this awful tempest and the, the waves are raging and the wind is raging and Christ stands up and he commands them to stop. And it says that the wind and the waves stopped. And, and the picture, like if you picture that in your mind, oftentimes we think about the sea kind of slowly getting less choppy, but that's not the image. The image is that immediately the wind and the waves stopped. It's this, not only does he stop the wind, but he also stops immediately the effect of the wind upon the waves and everything becomes calm. And the picture that you think of is, you know, our, our, our families are to be a, a safe haven from the world that's going crazy around us, right? In the midst of all of the insanity of the culture that's trying to get at our children, the father ought to be the one who is calm, who is collecting, who, who is the one who brings, a, a, brings the temperature down in the home that when the, when the kids and the wife come into the home, they sense safety here. 
It's, it's safety from the storm. And a father's good, loving, nurturing presence, cultivating both the lion and the lamb can, can cultivate that kind of atmosphere in the home. And, and I would just say, when we, we've talked a lot about in, in other episodes and things about sphere sovereignty. And one of the things I would just say where this gets practical in terms of fathers is that when you think of sphere sovereignty, that God has delegated his responsibility in different ways, there's self-government, family government, church government, and civil government. And I would just say fathers in particular, men are to be self-ruled, and it's our self-rule that qualifies us to rule within the family. And it's how well we rule within the family that qualifies us to rule within the church. And it's waiting for men to rule well within the church before God can uh, allows us to rule within society and we see transformation in our society. So it all starts with men who are self-ruled and uh, who, who cultivate the sort of lion and the lamb qualities of Christ. So, Michael, why don't you uh, give us some practical tidbits um, that we can uh, kind of wrap up this episode with and uh, and we'll leave it there. All right, everybody. So this section in the show is not boots, bits and bites or rights wriggling worms. Uh, this is the <laughs> Teeson's tidbits or Timbits. Um, guys, this has been a really good discussion. You minister when everything alliterates <laughs> like that. So well done. Uh, you know what? I actually hate alliteration so much, but I'm coming at you with three C's again. Uh, it just happened. It just happened to be in my brain this way. So first of all, a very practical thing when we've been talking about teaching in all of these things, you just have to take it. I'm, I'm thinking of the Texas flag. I'm thinking what's going on at the Texas border and like literally the concept of the idea of come and take it. So many men, you've just got to say, Come and take it. Like you have to take ownership and get started. And here are three practical ways. So first of all, catechism. Many men are totally intimidated about teaching their their children, but we have so many rich catechisms, which are basically a question, answer, textual proof form of learning. So the London Baptist Confession is uh, one good confession, 1689. And then we have the Westminster Catechism. Um, even in the London Baptist Confession, they say Charles Spurgeon took this uh, later on and, and made it useful for his own uh, church. You, you see lots of different confessions written. Catechism is important because it just asks a very simple question. It gives a very simple answer. And then as a family, you can look through scripture. So as a father, you do not need to know the answers to all of the catechism. You just have to lead your family through and learn with them. And of course, as you learn, you grow and learn so that you have these answers more in your mind. So it is a great family habit. Uh, uh, in Vodie Bauckham's book and in other people writing on this, this will be called family worship. But the, de the desire is for men to take it, to take responsibility, take authority and serve their family by saying, okay, we're going to, we're going to study something. And I'm, I'm advising you maybe start with a catechism and just so everybody knows this is always hit and miss. You know, we, we as a family, we get going on this, we feel good for a little while and then Life gets busy and, and and so you just have to keep at it. But a great place to start is go through one of the historic catechisms and utilize it at home um, on a daily basis or a weekly basis. Secondly, I just want to point out the concept of the conference. So um, in reading Jay Adams, a practice, uh, a, a Christian counselor's manual, Jay Adams, as a, as, a, as a counselor trying to give men tools, trying to give people tools to overcome um, issues within their home, talks about the importance of the conference and the importance of the role of the father to just bring the family together for a conference. If you've got a problem or an issue going on in your family between you and your wife, between you and your children, between siblings, between siblings, it is, it is a great opportunity for you to, to just sit down and say, okay, we're going to talk about this. I'm the chair of the meeting. Let's work through what you're going through. Let's work through your feelings. Let's listen to each other. Let's have guided, moderated uh, conversation. Let's look into the word of God for our answers. And so as a father, a very easy way, you know, um, there's there's tools out there. One of those tools is called a community temperature reading, where you just go through a number of different questions and answers. But the conference 
is a great tool. Dads, if you've got issues going on at home, you can easily just bring the family together and and lead them through that. And then finally, I just want to go from an example from my personal life. One of the greatest gifts my father has ever given me is the ability to publicly repent for sin. Um, uh, it, go, it, it touched to that point, Joe, that you were making about um, um, inauthentic, uh, being inauthentic, being a hypocrite. You know, your kids see you all the time. And they know you're a hypocrite. They know when you're doing wrong. And and you become less of a hypocrite when you admit your error. And so one of the greatest gifts that my father gave me, I continue to um, enjoy confessing my sins so that it just gets all of, you don't hide from people, uh, the confession of sin. Confess to your family regularly. You, you, don't, you don't have to drag them into everything. But if you've made an error, you quickly keep short accounts with your wife, keep short accounts with your family, confess your sin and you will um, stir up in your family a lot of these emotions that that joe and nate have been talking about so guys that's uh that's my final thought nate you want to wrap us up or yeah sounds good uh i just uh say that uh, one tool that you can uh, maybe get in your hands that can help you as you look to catechize your children is uh, the Heidelberg Diary. It's available on EzraPress.ca and that will help you understand the Heidelberg Catechism a little bit so that you will be well equipped as a father to catechize your children with it. Um, And uh, as always, there's lots of other great resources at EzraPress.ca and uh, all of our uh, various uh, digital material is available at EzraInstitute.com. So as always, we want to remind you that from him and through him and to him are all things. And we look forward to being with you again next week.